This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. Today's Thursday, September 22nd. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today, one of our new NFL writers at The Athletic, Kaylin Keller. Kaylin, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Robert. I'm really excited to be here. Excited to be on my first week on the job at The Athletic. It's been it's been fun. And it's a great team, great team of NFL writers. So uh, I'm excited to jump in and start covering week three. Here we go. We are coworkers again. How long yeah. were we coworkers before? Like four I months, like, five months? Like, yeah, like under six months for sure. And the one thing I remember that it involved is we ran um, – Walter Payton's Hill together, <laughs> um, where he used to train. Uh, where was that? Arlington Heights? It's in Arlington was Heights, like, yes. Yeah. Arlington Heights, Illinois. Yeah. It was on our uh, Super Bowl road trip. I think it was Super Bowl 50 uh, that year. It was It was Super Bowl 50, yes. It yep. was the one in San Francisco, between in Santa Clara, to be clear, yeah. between the Panthers and the Broncos. And I was like brand new in my job. I was like Peter King's personal assistant slash the site's editorial assistant, but like trying to write whenever I could and driving the van on that trip. And so I think I was in my first year on the job. But yeah, we're colleagues again. Here we are. (laughs) I spent, for those people who don't know, I spent like five months at Sports Illustrated in 2015 into 2016 after Grant unfolded. And Peter called me in November right after the site stopped operations i was like would you like to come work here i was like absolutely i would because i wouldn't have had a job for the rest of the season otherwise did that i was only supposed to be there until i think the end of the year but i stayed on through april and into the draft and then had a agonizing decision about whether to stay at sports illustrated or go back and work at the ringer and lost like 10 pounds as i was trying to make that decision because i was just pacing around my apartment every single day but everything worked out in the end i am very glad that we're back working together and i'm really excited to dig into this with you so we're going to do our normal Thursday show this week. We're going to talk about some of the news that came down this week, just some of the other storylines surrounding the league. We're going to do this every single Thursday with whoever's down to do it. <laughs> we have a rotating cast and crew on Thursdays this year. Not a ton of news to dig into this week. Nothing like the Dak injury from a week ago. No real big injury news. A couple things here and there. Willie Gay from the Chiefs got suspended for four games. I don't think we really have to dig into a ton of that. We're going to talk a lot about the Chiefs defense on tomorrow's show with Nate and Deontay. So please come back and check that out. One thing I did want to hit though, because I think it brings us to a larger conversation, is the Mike Evans suspension. Mike Evans suspended for one game that was upheld by the NFL today after he appealed it. I want to use that as a jumping off point to discuss, let's say, broader Bucks weirdness. The vibe check about how things are going in Tampa right now, there's just a lot happening. Bruce Arians getting into it with Marshawn Lattimore on the sideline and being on the sideline as the ex-coach, now member of the front office in some nebulous version, some nebulous role. Tom Brady, a report coming out earlier this week that he was no longer going to practice on Wednesday. He was going to get a personal day. I might be getting this wrong, but I think he was still going to be in the facility, being at meetings, all of that, which is very important. But then this week he is practicing on Wednesday. How are you feeling about everything that's happening in Tampa right now? I'm feeling really weird about all of it. Like, I guess the way I would describe it is I I think something is afoot 
in Tampa with Todd, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know exactly what, but it's like your, you know, your radar, your story radar kind of goes off when you're like looking at a team like this. Um, and for a lot of different reasons, like you mentioned that Wednesday, that report about um, the, how he had planned to take every Wednesday as a rest day. I think Rap Sheet had the original report and Todd Bowles confirmed it on Monday. But he did practice today, and that may have something to, something to do with the fact that Mike Evans is suspended, and you know he's got to get used to um, some younger receivers where they struggled last week with that. So um, that could be why. But I just feel like that everyone kind of accepted that report at face value. But to me, it seemed really weird because we already know he missed a significant portion of training camp, um, you know, doing whatever it was he was doing. And yeah, on the one hand, he is a player who, with his status, with his experience, with his track record, has earned this veteran rest for sure. Like no one could argue that he has not earned his way here, but to be like not practicing on the same day every week, which if you talk to any coach, like Wednesday is one of the most important days of the week. I mean, it is the most important day of the week for uh, players and coaches in terms of game planning. Um, I mean, it is Tom. Like, does he really need to be doing anything in practice? Probably not compared to other players. But to me, it seemed really weird. Like, I, I was kind of confused as to why everybody was just like, oh, yeah, he's just not going to be at practice on Wednesday. To me, that seemed like a big thing. And now it seems like he's already kind of walking that back. So it's even more confusing, like, what is going on here? And I just see a, a player who, you know, is one foot in one foot out and is not really committed fully to this season. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you read the Sean McVay profile that ESPN did earlier sure. this summer. Um, and it was essentially about how football basically like is Sean McVay's like personal tormentor. Like this man <laughs> cannot, like he's so obsessed with it that it's kind of like driving him crazy. And so I'm like, okay, I see what's going on with Tom now. And I'm like, okay, Tom is like the same person. Like he cannot quit this, even if it may be what he needs. Because if you're making all these concessions, you're missing camp, you you want to miss Wednesday practices. Maybe you just shouldn't be playing and continuing your career, but he clearly cannot let it go. So something's weird. Something weird is going on for sure. I think in some situations, there could be some resentment that bubbles up from guys in the locker room. It's like, really, this guy's not going to practice on Wednesday or he's going to take two weeks off from training camp? I do think that situation changes when it's Tom Brady. I'm not sure there are a lot of guys in the locker room who are like, really? Like, fuck this guy. Like, seriously, he's not going to play? That's not what I'm concerned about. But this is a team that spent about $240 million in cash this offseason pushing into future years because they're trying to keep their pedal to the floor for 2022. They made a lot of financial concessions and a lot of decisions based on the short-term window. Think about the cascade of signings that happened after Brady announced that he was coming back. Ryan Jensen was back. Carlton Davis was back. All these things happened because it's like, all right, one last ride. Let's get the band back together. We are all full speed, same direction. This is the group that we've worked with. We know what we're getting into. When that happens in camp, it's like, oh, well, is that really the mindset anymore? And now the fact that he's going to take a day off every single Wednesday, for a lot of guys, you need the rest day. You're a veteran. I think it makes sense. But what has Tom Brady's superpower been for the last 20 years of him being in the public consciousness? He's maniacal. 
It's a work ethic thing. It's him being more invested in this than any human being can possibly be invested in it. And the fact that it is, I, I totally agree with you, this one foot out, one foot in feel, I'm not faulting or criticizing Tom Brady for that. I can understand that there are real pulls happening to him outside of football, but I do think that at a certain point, it starts to have a tangible effect to what the entire enterprise and the entire organizational feel is about everyone pulling in the same direction for this one last time. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think we probably haven't seen the effects of it yet on the field, but I don't know. Their offense has been pretty bad. It's true. I, there, when the win loss record, we haven't seen it. But in in the in the performance compared to last season, you're right. Like we have <laughs> seen a little bit of a difference there. So I think it's definitely something to keep an eye on for sure as the season goes on. And it makes me wonder. I mean, there's all the speculation of oh, did Bruce Arians have to move to the front office role, you know, the senior role because Tom was coming back and Tom didn't want to work with him anymore as the head coach. But it also makes me wonder. I mean, Bruce has a reputation of being such a hard ass. Would Bruce have allowed Tom to to have the rest that he wants? Was that part of the negotiation of him coming back? Was that all going on, you know, when Tom retired? Was there, you know, were, were the Bucks coming to him and saying, oh, you know, we'll let you do this. We'll let you do that if you just come back for one more year. Like, here's all the things that you don't have to do anymore. I'd love to know what actually was going on behind the scenes in those conversations. I think we should definitely talk about the fact that the guys are hurt on the offensive line. They're banged up. They got a lot of backups in there. They're playing with receivers that are second, third team guys because of the injuries at that position. The Bucks' offense isn't struggling because Tom Brady's taking a day off from practice or Tom Brady went to the Bahamas for 10 days in August. But this is a situation where you think about when it all starts to cascade where you have these things start to pile on top of one another, and this is how a lost season begins, where you have offensive line injuries piling up, your receiver injuries piling up, combined with the fact that your quarterback, who is the most all-in dude who's ever lived, and I think you just see the cracks in the foundation start to form. It's two weeks into the season. They might be fine, but this makes my alarm bells and my spidey sense go off a little bit in a way that just the Bahamas trip didn't, or just some offensive line injuries didn't, or just some Bruce Arians weirdness didn't. But when you start to combine it all, it starts to get a little bit itchy. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. For their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash maze, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash maze now to grow your business, no matter which stage you're in. Shopify.com slash maze.
All right. Let's talk about some other precarious situations throughout the NFL. We're going to dig into some winless teams on today's show. We're going to talk about one game this week between some, a couple teams that we're worried about, a couple teams whose seasons already seem over, and we're not sure what happens from here. I want to start with the Raiders and Titans game. It's not a game that we're going to get to during our preview show, but these are two 0-2 teams. And it kind of feels like a loser leaves town match with these two. The team that goes to 0-3, their season is probably over. For the Titans, maybe a little less so because they're playing in the AFC South and who the hell knows what that's going to happen, how that's going to happen and how that's going to unfold. But these are two teams that probably didn't expect to be 0-2 based on what they did last season, expectations coming into the year. How are you feeling about the Raiders and Titans at this stage of things? Well, the first thing I I think of when I think of the Raiders is – Everyone thought the AFC West was going to be this insanely tough division. Oh my gosh, it's it's so difficult. And now we see like half of that division is really, uh, I don't know if it's too early to say they're frauds, you know, but they seem to be frauds so far, the Raiders and the Broncos. So that's kind of interesting to me because that is not what I expected it to turn out as. Um, you know, and with the Titans, I mean, I expect most teams to get kind of shellacked by the Bills. Uh, this season because they are so dominant and so, so good. But that was kind of a shocking performance um, by a team that Mike Rabel, I think, is one of the best head coaches out there. His teams are usually super disciplined, super sound. He's situationally really good. Um, You know, it seems like every year he's been able to do something with uh, less like, you know, coping with injuries, coping with the loss of Derrick Henry last year. Um, it seems like he's always been able to really adapt his coaching for these Titans and they're perennially a threat in the AFC. Uh, but this, this start to this season has looked really concerning for the Titans. I think the Raiders will probably be okay. You know, they outplayed the Cardinals on Sunday. You lose on a couple of fluke plays. The Chargers are a very good team. The offensive line has been a little bit better than I expected them to be. Uh, the Cardinals did. I mean, obviously, the Cardinals pass rush is not very good. And they're blitzing constantly. I, I think that offense will figure it out over time as they all get settled in and start to play together, have those things marinate a little longer than they have. You know, the defense has concerns. Max Crosby is, is a superstar, but they're. They have one of the lowest pressure rates in the league through two games. Chandler Jones has not had a huge impact. They don't have a lot of pass rush juice in the middle of that defense. The defense, I think, overall, over the course of the season, is probably going to be below average. And I do think that there's a significant teardrop between what the Chargers and the Chiefs are and what the Raiders and the Broncos are. And that's okay. That's not the most shocking thing in the world. I think the Raiders will be fine over the course of the year. I think the Titans, it's time to start panicking. If you look at what they were uh, on Monday against against the Bills, Terry Luan goes down. He's now out for the season. Okay. They might have a bottom three offensive line with him out. It might be worse than that. Honestly, you have a rookie right tackle. Dennis Daly, who is a perennial backup, is now your left tackle. Corey Brewer, their left guard. There was a rep against Greg Rousseau in that game where he just got absolutely worked. That group used to be a strength of this team. What is the best part of what the Titans offense is now? They have the second lowest rushing success rate in the NFL through two games. Only the Bengals, who we will get to, have been worse. So you're starting to run out of areas where this team has strengths, where they outclass the teams that they're playing against. On defense, Elijah Molden's on IR. Harold Landry's on IR. 
chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And I thought they'd be bad. I didn't think they'd be this bad, but we're trending in a pretty dangerous direction with Tennessee, I think. Were you there? Um, did you go there for training camp? I did not year? go there. No. Okay. I was going to ask you what you thought of them, like preseason, if you saw them. I, I wasn't there either, so I didn't get a, get a chance to look at them. I that's one there where it's a little bit far from everything else and the yeah. drive for the drive from Nashville to Chicago is always too daunting yeah. for me to just tack it on at the end of the trip. <laughs> yeah, six, I was seven, con- eight hours. I was concerned about them coming into the season and they were always going to take a step back. You, you trade what I think is your best offensive player and if you look at what AJ Brown has been for the Eagles, he's a really really good he's an important piece. You have uh, you Swap that out for a first-round pick that even if you're excited about him long-term, you're going to take a small step backward. The offensive line is an absolute mess. You draft a quarterback in the third round. This was a transition year, and it feels like a transition year, and it feels like it's going to be an even messier one than we might have expected. Yeah, and I think, I mean, as you said earlier, like if you're a Titans fan, you it is kind of panic mode. But I think the good thing is, you know, Rabel is not on the hot seat by any means. Um, you know, this is a transition year, as you mentioned. So this could just be, you know, a down year for the Titans. But I think their 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 coach is there for the long term. Like this is your head coach, and so it'll be interesting to see what adjustments he makes this season because I do think he's been so good at that in the past. And I think you're totally right. They they miss AJ Brown so much, and the rushing game has been so underperforming. Like uh, Derrick Henry, 170. 107 yards on 34 carries in the first two games. Uh, that's really surprised me. But, I mean, how do you expect him to do what he does when, as you pointed out, the offensive line is in shambles? So You would expect that they move on from Ryan Tannehill this offseason. They can get out from under the Bud Dupree contract this offseason, still eating a decent amount of dead money on both of those. Luan is going to be 32 next year. They can move on from him for no dead money whatsoever. The youth movement could be coming here. The hard reset could be coming for this team. I understand the moves that they made in the moment last summer. So you look at the reason that Ryan Tannehill has a seventeen point eight or eighteen point eight million dollar dead money hit next year. They moved a ton of his money into later years when they were creating cap space last year. They make the Julio Jones trade. They tried to make one more run at it with a group that they had that was one of the most efficient offenses in the league when Arthur Smith was their offense coordinator over those couple of years. Each individual decision is defensible. But sometimes string just runs out. Sometimes you get to the dead end, you get to the end of the road, and you just didn't get there. And that's kind of feel what it feels like with this Titans team. And it kind of feels like that big transition is happening next offseason. And like you said, Mike Vrabel and John Robinson are the guys who are going to oversee that. They've been tasked with seeing the franchise into whatever the next era ends up looking like, whether that's Malik Willis, whether that's somebody else. But I do think that reset is coming. The question now becomes, we saw Malik Willis in the fourth quarter pretty early in that game on Monday night. Is there a moment later in the year where they understand the season is over? Like we have to figure out what we have in him because we have to make a decision this spring. I think that is going to loom sooner rather than later and much sooner than we probably expected or most people probably expected. I thought the Titans would be bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm surprised that they are uh, where they are right now. I didn't, I didn't see that coming in the, way, in the way that you did, and I think you're right. I think they might get to a point like week ten, maybe a little bit later, where it becomes Malik Willis time, and that could be actually pretty exciting. I mean, that, that's a reason to watch them again, turn it back on, see what they have. 
Now you're dropping Malik Willis into a situation where he's playing with one of the worst offensive lines in the league, potentially, and Nick Wexbrook, Akina, and Kyle Phillips, and whoever else they're trotting out at receivers. So the circumstances have changed pretty quickly in terms of how cushy that offense and that huddle are for the Titans. Let's stick in the AFC with another team that has been wildly disappointing over the first two weeks of the season, and that's the Indianapolis Colts. I've done plenty of laying into the Colts uh, over the last week or so. I think my Colts frustration were, was on full display for anyone who listened to the Sunday night show. W- what would you say is the most concerning aspect for you for how the Colts have played over the first two weeks? Um, I would say, I mean, the fact that they were without Michael Pittman and everything just went to absolute shit on that offense uh, is is concerning because um, – you know, it was one game and they should be able to sort of adapt to that. And also, I mean, the only thing that went well in that game was the one uh, Jonathan Taylor run where they, the refs threw the flag thinking he had helmet contact and then had to pull it back when it was just his shoulder. But it was such an angry run. Like, that is really the only thing that was going well. And they didn't even – their run game on Sunday still wasn't great. Um, they're not using Naheem Hines the way that they want to be and the way that they should be. Um, so I would say I'm most concerned, I think, with the cast of weapons around Matt Ryan on offense um, is is how I would, would characterize that, I think. Because, you know, you see uh, other teams, as we just we were just talking about A.J. Brown, teams making moves for really talented receivers like that, and the Colts have not done that. Um, yet they're expecting Matt Ryan to be able to make plays off schedule and to play in that way. But I don't think they have provided him with the supporting cast that he needs. We, I asked this question to Nate on Sunday night. How many elite players at real difference-making positions do the Colts have? And I think they have some. You know, like we we know what Quentin Nelson is, and we can have an argument about whether that's a difference making position. I think that DeForest Buckner is a very good player. What they've gotten out of Grover Stewart, they have some pieces, and Quiddy Pay has been fine this year. Stephon Gilmore is a worthwhile gamble at corner in the contract that they gave him. But we're pretty far removed from the time that this team has collected a, a lot of their difference makers. We're not four years removed from that 2018 draft. And Michael Pittman is a good player. And and obviously Jonathan Taylor is a good player. But I I just, I look at the way the Colts have built this thing. And I look, like you mentioned, the contrast between how the Colts have gone about this and how a team like Miami or how a team like Philadelphia or some of the other franchises around the league and how aggressive they've been at adding talent. And that's fine if the Colts want to build this way. I just think you're hamstringing yourself a little bit when you consider how uh, how aggressive and how ambitious other teams are in adding star-level talent to the rosters that they have. And the Colts waiting out the market and getting Stephon Gilmore at a bargain. All of this makes sense. It feels like Chris Ballard and, and that group at this stage of the game is like that guy in your fantasy league who just refuses to overpay for anyone. And then <laughs> yeah. he gets to the end of the draft and, in an auction. He just has no good players. Like <laughs> yeah. He, he yeah, got yeah. value on every single guy that he right. chased. But there are no stars on that team. And I do think that there is hope for the Colts this year. I, I think that they'll probably be okay. I think that they'll be competitive in the AFC down the stretch. But I just look at this team and 
it's just hard not to feel a little bit underwhelmed and when you consider what some of the other rosters in the league look like out there. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And especially in a NFL where the last Super Bowl champion, the Rams, you know, threw it all out there, put all the cards on the table to build a team that they thought could win in the one, you know, season they needed it to. And there's an argument of whether, you know, is that the right strategy? Do you want to build something that's going to last for several years instead of one season. And obviously it's too early to know if the Rams can repeat or not, but it's so hard to build like a dynasty in today's NFL that I do think the way to win is what we've mentioned, you know, spending big on Tyreek Hill on uh, AJ Brown on players of that caliber that are really going to elevate your quarterback situation. And particularly in Indianapolis where, you know, it's been a revolving door at quarterback since Andrew Luck retired. I mean, that's a seminal moment for this franchise that um, I think we've all thought it's the quarterback every year that they haven't made the playoffs or that they've underperformed and haven't uh, fulfilled the expectations. And I know you're a big fan of the Colts. You know, you get into the Colts every season. You you want them to do well. Uh, against um, my better judgment, I, yeah. I get into the Colts every season. <laughs> but it's like maybe – you know, this year might be the year that we start realizing it's not just the quarterback. Like, maybe that's not the issue here. It could be a combination of a bunch of other things. And I think from the first two games, I mean, Matt Ryan hasn't played great, but he had a bad pick last week at Jacksonville. But I don't know. I think the first two games, you 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 wanted to question a little bit more of like, it might not be the quarterback in Indianapolis. I think the Colts have been framed as this team that not a maybe a quarterback away might be overstating it, but that it's a good place for a quarterback to be. And I do think that guys want to play for Frank Reich just because he played in the position. He played the position. The offense has been well orchestrated uh, over his time there. They've been able to shuffle between different quarterbacks and have pretty good results. I mean, what they've done as a borderline top 10 offense with a new quarterback every single year, I do think is impressive. And I do think that Frank Reich is a good offensive coach and that that will sort itself out over time. But if you look at the supporting cast that Matt Ryan is playing with in Indianapolis right now, Michael Pittman's a really good player. Alec Pierce is a rookie. He struggled in week one, and I think he's going to struggle. They don't have a real difference maker at tight end on this roster. The offensive line, which used to be the calling card for this team, got absolutely stomped against the Jaguars last week. And it's not like we couldn't have seen some version of this coming. Their left tackle is a guy who's bounced around the league for a long time. Their right guard is somebody who has never been a full-time starter in the NFL. So you've got three above-average starters along the offensive line and two potential weak links at a position that's a weak link system. So there just aren't that many areas of the roster where you're like, man, the Colts are really stacked there. They're solid but unspectacular in a lot of different places, in my opinion. And I think that that is the same sort of valuation we can give to the Gus Bradley move on defense, which was a solid but unspectacular choice. And he came out this week and said, well, you know, it's it's early. You know, the guys, they'll start playing faster when they get a better handle on things. The defense is simple as, as far as I understand it, which should allow you to play fast. And we have this acclimation period with them every single early part of the season. And now they're in an 0-2 hole. They're playing, they're an 0-1-1 hole, a winless hole. And they're playing the Chiefs this weekend. More than likely, they're going to 0-2-1. And, and at a certain point, it's just the frustration starts to build because 
it feels like they should be better than this, but at a certain point, it makes me want to step back and say, should they really be better than this? Or is this just who they are right now? Yeah, hundred percent. And we, and I was looking at, since we were talking about, oh, the, you know, get paying for a receiver and making those big moves. I was looking at um, just kind of the league wide passing offense stats and Miami is at the top. I mean, it's only two games, small sample size. It's early, but you know, Tyreek Hill has made a huge difference there for Tua, a quarterback who there were a lot of questions about him. Um, so obviously it's not really an apples to apples comparison because there's more than just Tyreek on that offense and they have a new coach and all of that. But that did kind of stick out to me as, you know, an example of what can happen when you do make those moves. And obviously it's two games. It's week three. It's early. But and I, I said this yet last year, last offseason going into the year, and I think probably at times during the season. This is the team it's going to be in a lot of ways because all of these guys are on extensions. Shaq Leonard's on an extension. Braden Smith's on an extension. Grover Stewart got his extension. Quentin Nelson's money starts kicking in next year. DeForest Buckner's on a huge contract. Matt Ryan's slated to make $35 million. When you're cycling between these expensive veteran quarterbacks, you don't have a lot of financial wiggle room to play around with. So it's not like the 2019 or 2020 version of the Colts where you have these ascending players that are on rookie contracts and what can this eventually be? Their space to work in has become much more constricted. And I think that the expectations shift as a result of that. And I also think that they deserve some credit for moving on from Carson Wentz at the time that they did. But they also deserve some criticism for wanting to make the Carson Wentz trade in the first place. Like they traded away a first round pick to go get Carson Wentz. And it's just hard for me to see how this team is notably or significantly better than it has been over the last couple seasons. And I think that we probably should have been able to point that out a little bit sooner. Yeah. And one thing, one other thing that surprises me about Indianapolis is that Jim Irsay, he does seem like the kind of owner who would be pushing for bigger moves, pushing for, um, you know, moves like we've mentioned earlier um, that are going to really elevate your offense. And so I'm a little bit surprised. I mean, and he did come out and really criticize Carson Wentz at the end of last season. So he's pretty vocal. So I'm kind of interested to see, you know, what he's going to say the rest of the season, depending on how it goes and and how that will maybe change the way that they, they spend or, or kind of look at their moves. They've never been a team that's thrown a lot of cash around. Like that's never how the Colts have operated. And that's fine. But if you're going to operate that way, if you're not going to throw a ton of money around and all the other owners in the league or a huge portion of them are willing to spend like that, then at a certain point, you get to a competitive disadvantage. If you're not willing to make those moves and you're just operating in this way, then there and there are teams that are willing to do everything they can to add talent to the roster. I think that that gap starts to get bigger and bigger. And there's a chance that that's what we're seeing with Indianapolis. He should just sell some of his um, famous collectible guitars to <laughs> fundraise, <laughs> raise right. the budget a little bit. <laughs> Speaking of teams that aren't willing to spend much money, uh, the Cincinnati Bengals oh, are 0-2. Yeah. We've spent a lot of time uh, talking about the Bengals, me and Nate, on the Sunday night show. What are, where are you most concerned with the Bengals at this stage of things? So it's interesting. I actually am not super surprised that they're 0-2 because – I think they got a lot of breaks last season, and it's not like we haven't seen them have bad games. I'm reminded of week two at Chicago last season. Um, they lost, I think, by three points, but the offense was 
really struggling the whole time. So it's not super surprising to me to see kind of the uh, spurts of difficulty that they've been going through this season. Um, I I think the thing that worries me the most is obviously uh, protecting Burrow and the offensive line because it really hasn't improved the way that it should have uh, with the moves that they've made and uh, with the way that last season played out where that was such a huge problem and, you know, the biggest area of focus um, that they needed to address. And so I think that's probably the biggest concern if you're thinking about, you know, a position group performance or a unit. Um, I think protecting Burrow is probably at the top of the list there. Uh, but actually, Jay Morrison, who covers the Bengals for The Athletic, he had a really interesting breakdown of how it, it was it published this week of how um, slow of a start they get off to offensively. Um, and he took the first two drives uh, of the Bengals since Burrow has been quarterback and compared them to, you know, drives three through 10 in the same uh, for the rest of the season. And there was a very clear pattern of Burrow really struggling in the first two drives of every game. And that to me stood out and was interesting because it led me to kind of think about what that means, which is we know that the first couple drives of the game are scripted, right? Your head coach is able to really script out or whoever your play caller is, which in the case of Cincinnati, it is Zach Taylor, the head coach. He is both the head coach and the offensive play caller. So in in this case, in your first couple drives, all of these plays are scripted. These should be your best drives because these are the plays that you have picked out that your quarterback is comfortable with that you as the coordinator or head coach have decided. And, you know, together with your team, you're like, yeah, we love these plays. These are, this is great. So for them to be so underperforming on the first couple drives, to me, that makes me think, is it time to talk about maybe handing off, delegating the play calling to somebody else on staff, offensive coordinator Brian Callahan, who is very, you know, he's got a lot of experience in the league. I believe he's only called plays once, the Senior Bowl, um, when the Bengals had the Senior Bowl, the very first year that they were a staff, Zach Taylor delegated for that. But as far as I could tell, it's possible he may have done some preseason play calling at some point, but as far as I could tell from, you know, Googling around, reading what they've said about play calling, um, I think Zach has done most of it even in the in the preseason as well. So this is a question that I think is really fascinating is how head coaches balance offensive play calling and being a head coach. It obviously can work. We've seen it work a lot. It also can be really difficult and challenging and overwhelming. And I think of a couple examples from the last year that stand out to me as so far looking like really good decisions to give up that responsibility. First is Nick Sirianni with the Eagles. At some point last year, he doesn't even remember when it was. I'm sure he does, but he just doesn't want to say. I'm fairly certain that it was the mini buy that they had after the Thursday night game against the Bucs is when okay. they made that choice. They, and that they, would make they sense. did kind of a diagnostic yeah. on what's working, what's not, what do we need to do on offense? And I think that that's when he ultimately handed it off. And that would make a lot of sense because you've got the extra time um, in that week. So, so anyways, he at some point, probably then last season, decided uh, I'm going to hand off offensive play calling to my coordinator because I am not able to communicate the way that I want to. And he, he talked in June 
during OTAs about why he made that decision. And he said it was because he wasn't able to do little things like go talk to a referee during a game about something he saw or because there actually are, there's so many moments in a game that we don't even realize from our vantage point that a coach can really either make a suggestion to an official point out an error to an official. They can really almost like lobby for certain positions that will help them in the game. And if you are so immersed in offensive play calling, that's not going to be top of mind for you. Um, You're not going to have as much time to be doing that during a game. So Sirianni made that choice and it looks like a great choice for the Eagles so far. Um, There's a chance that Shane Steichen's just really, really good at this. And that's okay. We we talked about this coming into the show. It doesn't have to be weird. You don't have to make this weird. I think with the the Bengals specifically, you start running out of reasons why the offense is struggling, right? Last year, it was the offensive line. It was the personnel. Uh, Every single thing they did this offseason would lead you to believe that they thought it was the offensive line personnel. Well, you have better players on the offensive line now. You have arguably the best pass catching group in the entire league. You have a quarterback that we've seen be elite in stretches. So if you're going to try to tweak something here, if you're going to try to inject some life into this, there's really only one answer left. And I think it's totally acceptable because I think that they've run out of gas a little bit here. And I think they need a jump start of some kind. And it feels like this might be it. And there's nothing wrong with that. Because by all accounts, Zach Taylor has done a really good job of setting an organizational culture and really making that a locker room that guys want to be a part of and really doing a lot of work within the building. And that's fine. That's enough to prove your value. Like Zach Taylor was never some play-calling wunderkind before he got this job. And if this was new, if these issues with the offense and the structural issues of the offense were new, then I think, oh, we've seen them work through this before. They'll be totally fine. At no point last season when the Bengals were winning games was anyone who was watching this closely saying, man, the Bengals offense is really well designed. They do a great job formationally, game planning, all of this stuff. These concerns about how siloed it was, how predictable it was, these were concerns that date all the way back to last season. So if with that being the case, I feel like this is an ongoing issue that maybe deserves some scrutiny. Last year, Their offense was built on explosive plays. That's what it was. It was built on explosive plays that were created in part by the decision-making of their quarterback. Teams this year have done dramatic things to take those explosive plays away. I looked at the numbers today. It's wild. Joe Burrow has 46 dropbacks against cover two this year, according to True Media. No one else in the league has more than 32 of those. It's it's 41% of his total dropbacks, he's on pace for 391 dropbacks against cover two. Last year, Josh Allen led the league at 127 oh of them. <laughs> it, 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 this is, it's insane. I was going to ask you, I was like, who was the league leader last year for, for reference? Oh my God. That's it, it's in a crazy. completely different zip code. And they yeah. knew this. They, yeah. If you talk to them coming into the season, they knew this was going to happen. They knew that teams were going to not allow them If he sees single high, he's taking the one-on-one to Jamar. He did it every single time last year. They knew coming into the year 
that this is how teams were going to play against them because of how they got burned down the stretch last season with go balls and being able to take vertical shots. And they still haven't been able to work through it. They are dead last in rushing success rate. They have the fourth most runs in the league. If This would natural progression of things. If teams are playing more cover two against you, then you probably have more light boxes. That is correct. They have the fourth most rushing attempts this year into five and six man boxes. Translating, they have their thirtieth in rushing success rate on those plays into five and six man boxes. And and didn't you something needs to change? And like week one, I think I saw this stat somewhere. They like sixteen of the eighteen times they were under center, they ran the ball, and it was just like they were like telegramming exactly what they were going to do. And again, like, hello, that's play calling. Hello, paging Zach Taylor. It's time. It's time to give it up. Um, And the the other coach I was going to bring up is a really good example of this, where it doesn't have to be weird. And someone who absolutely had every, every right in the world to be the offensive play caller is Brian Dayball with the Giants. Hired to the Giants, first time head coach, hired for his expertise in running that Bills offense. One of the most exciting offenses in the league with Josh Allen. He delegated the task to Mike Kafka, who is a first-time offensive coordinator, first-time full-time play caller. Um, he delegated to him during the entire preseason, and it was kind of up in the air. Was he going to call plays? Was he not? And he decided at the end of the preseason, you know what? I'm going to let my coordinator do it because I've now realized that I have other things I need to be doing during the game. And I think I trust him and I have confidence in him. So it wasn't weird. It wasn't a thing. Um, Just move on. Try something new. If it doesn't work, you can always go back. I was looking up some of the numbers on this. So last year, Jamar Chase averaged 12.7 air yards per attempt on, on throws to him within the Bengals offense. It's one of the highest rates in the entire league. This year, it's eight yards. Eek. That's it, that's what's happening. That is what's happening. As the as the space to attack down the field becomes more mm-hmm. compressed, Shrinks. you have to alter how you're going to play. And they have not been able to do that. And I think it, it's time to consider a change. If you look at the Bengals schedule, they are playing on Thursday night next week against the Dolphins. Talk about a week four mini buy that the Eagles had last year. Here's your week four this mini buy for Coming the Bengals. Coming at the perfect time. This season is not lost. Let's go. I think it's a a real thing that they should take into account. Last team we wanted to dig into here. Oh, yeah. Carolina Panthers are 0-2. So the last two weeks on the preview show, I have – we're doing a bit this year where we're having people make arguments for what the fourth screen on my Sunday ticket should be. Oh, okay, nice. The the crazier the argument (laughs) – the more appealing it is to us. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. The Panthers ones have been completely unhinged, so the Panthers <laughs> have won. This year, when I gave people the option for what the fourth screen would be, I yeah. did not allow them to choose the Panthers because I can't do it anymore. You the, removed the Pan- it from consideration. The Panthers are in the no-fly zone for at least week three. Maybe they can get back into this. So with some of these other teams, Bengals are 0-2. Bengals will probably be fine over the course of the season. They can sort through some of the stuff. The talent is too good. The trajectory of the franchise is just fine. The Raiders, I think, it hasn't looked great, but it's probably going to look okay moving forward. The Titans, down year, we could have expected them to have a little bit of a down year. We know who's going to be in charge. We know what the next year or two of Tennessee's franchise probably look like. That is not the case with the Panthers. It's often too soon to panic after two games. I don't think it's too soon to panic with Carolina. I I think we're firmly in the mode where it's time to wonder 
what comes next for the Panthers. And I think a messy situation is on the horizon for a bunch of different reasons. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's not often that a coach gets three. This is their his third try at a quarterback, I believe, right? This is they had yes. Teddy, Sam, uh yeah. Three, yeah, third, third try. So I'd say um, three and a half times because they traded away a third round pick next year for Matt Corral. There you go. Yeah. So I mean, barring they win every single game from here on out, which is not going to happen. This is certainly the end of Matt Rule because you don't get a fourth shot. Um, that's just not really how it works. And I know David Tepper's. I, I kind of read him as being like a pretty impatient owner. Somebody who you, really you don't wants think. To- He's changed yeah. his mind with the quarterback every six yeah. weeks. Right, right. So, so I mean, the writing's on the wall here. It's the time is up. The time is up for Matt Rule. Um, and I think I don't know who we can predict to take that job next year, but it certainly will not be someone from the college ranks. I think, I think that is very clear. I don't. Whoever takes the job is one consideration. We talked about this a little bit earlier today. My concern is about misalignment organizationally that is on the horizon because you have a general manager there who came in after Matt Rule and Scott Fitterer. After this goes to hell, does Scott Fitterer stay? Is that in the best interest of the organization, even if some of this and most of this isn't Scott Fitterer's fault? That is going to be one question that the Panthers have to answer. Another question the Panthers have to answer is, whoever takes over this team is, why don't we have any money And why do we have so few draft picks? And why don't we have a quarterback without any of these resources to go chase one? How how much cap cap space do you think the Panthers have right now, at this very moment, slated to have in 2023? $2. I'm just kidding. You're like, no, but you're right. It's much (laughs) worse than that. It's It's negative $20 million. They are are currently (laughs) slated to be $20 million over the 2023 cap. Terrible. Shaq Thompson is making $25 million. Robbie Cat Robbie Anderson's cap hit next year is $21.7 million. That comes in just ahead of Keenan Allen, just behind Shaq Barrett, just or just behind Russell Wilson. That is the 11th highest cap hit among NFL receivers next season. DJ Moore is at seven. So the Panthers are spending $46 million total on receivers in 2023. And maybe this is a play calling issue. Maybe with better coaching, they'll be fine. Maybe with better quarterback play, they'll be fine. But it just speaks to how difficult whatever process, whatever work a new coach is going to have to do when they walk in there, because so much has been committed to a version of the roster that can't beat the Giants and is looks absolutely dead in the water. And that's my concern here is not that Matt Rule is a bad coach and this is going to be a lost season. We already know that. It's the decisions that have already been made and how much they're going to hamstring the next regime that has to come in here and figure out what the hell they're going to do with this team. I think it's really similar to Chicago. Um, it's very which, similar. Yeah. I mean, it's it looks exactly like the Chicago cycle, which is no one was ever on the same page for like 10 years. Um, you know, a, a GM would hire a coach. Then the GM's fired. Then the coach is fired, but no one's ever coming in at the same time. And everyone is inheriting the quarterbacks, which is never a situation that you want. And we'll see how it plays out in Chicago with the new head coach and GM inheriting Justin Fields. But 
you know, it's, I always think if I'm an owner, what do I do? Like, do I want to start fresh with both a GM and a head coach? And then, you know, maybe try to like trade away the quarterback that the last GM drafted, you know, Matt Corral. I don't know that he would have any value next year, but like, you know, what are you, what is the plan? Like, is it best to have the QB come in, have your new crew pick the quarterback instead of inheriting the quarterback? I would seem to think that it is. And so, yeah, Carolina is in, is in a tough spot, but if they did keep Scott Fitterer as GM, at least he's attached to Matt Corral. So that would be a positive. And then, you know, he'll have a say in who the, who the next head coach is. And then maybe it wouldn't be totally, you know, directionless. Um, he could provide maybe a little bit of stability there. I don't know. It's a really, it's a really interesting argument. And I think it's one of the reasons where, why you saw this year in Chicago, Ryan Poles cut like basically everyone <laughs> that Ryan Pace had picked. Like they went through, I mean, they had the most, um, what was it? The most waiver claims after, uh, after cut down day, um, of any team, they put in the most claims and they got the most players. And then, you know, like 20% of their roster changed. So I think that's why you see like such a clearing out going, going on in Chicago is, you know, there was just a stockpile of, of players that the new regime just does not really want anything to do with. And they're trying to get their cap numbers better. They're trying to get money. They're trying to get better players. But it's a very similar situation as Carolina where you enter and you're like, what is going on here? Like, do we have anything? The guys they've committed to in Carolina are younger than some of the more expensive players that the Bears had, right? Like Khalil Mack is, was on the wrong side of 30. Robbie Anderson, they can move, cut him and incur a $9.8 million dead cap hit. Some of these other guys, like like what do you do with Shaq Thompson? Christian McCaffrey's making what he's making. That's that's a deal that you're locked into. Taylor Moten's making what he's making. Then there are players here. And I think that maybe with, with the right sort of pivot, you could get the most out of some of these expensive pieces because they're still young enough. It, it's just going to be a tough thing where you walk into a house that's already half built and you're not sure how you're supposed to finish it off or if you're supposed to tear it down. That, that's the eternal question when you come into a job like this. And it, it just already looks messy. And, and I'm already not envious of the person who has to come in and figure out what the next steps of this should look like. That's all we got. Kalen, really, really appreciate you coming to do this with us. Very excited for you to be here and for you to be a part of what we're doing on the podcast side of things. So thank you very much for the time. Thanks for having me, Robert. Everybody enjoy week three. All right. That's all we got today, guys. As always, really appreciate you listening. We will be back today with me and Nate's And then Deontay will be joining us a little bit later on our week three preview show. So please come check that out. In the meantime, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. I'd very much appreciate that. Please subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash football show. Kim, what are you working on? What can people read that you're you're writing right now? Oh, well, I just filed something. It probably will be up by the time you guys are listening to this um, about – uh, you know, Nathaniel Hackett's struggles and, you know, how he's not really set up for success. Very similar to what we just talked about with offensive play calling being an interference for a new head coach. So I have something about Dan- Nathaniel Hackett coming up. Um, and then I have a couple features that I'm excited about that I'm working on, but I'm not going to share them here just that in case is totally anyone, fine. any other reporters are listening and going to steal my ideas. No one listens to this podcast. So if you <laughs> wanted to actually share it, you'd be totally fine. <laughs> 
Please subscribe to The Athletic if you guys are not subscribed already. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can click that in the description, I believe. Beller, you put it in the description. It will be down in the description, so please subscribe to that. We are doing our Sunday recap show, the Monday Hangover with Deontay, and our weekly preview show all on YouTube. It's also you can watch Wind the Clock, which is Nate's X's and O's tape series that he is doing. So highly encourage you guys to subscribe if you have not. In the meantime, appreciate you guys listening. We'll talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.